Welcome to a new podcast episode created for the research project Humanitarian Diplomacy, Assessing Policies, Practices and Impact of New Forms of Humanitarian Action and Foreign Policy. Our research project is based at Christian Mikkelsen Institute, CMI, and led by research professor Antonio De Lauri. And the project is funded by the Research Council of Norway. My name is Salla Turunen, and I am a doctoral researcher currently investigating the humanitarian diplomacy conducted at the United Nations. Despite being a prominent humanitarian actor and a diplomatic body, the UN has relatively little institutional guidance on how do its entities understand and engage in humanitarian diplomacy, as the concept has not been clearly integrated into its organizational frameworks. Today we look into another kind of a case with another prominent humanitarian actor, the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. ICRC's policy for humanitarian diplomacy was adopted by its governing board in Paris already in May 2009. Their definition for the term humanitarian diplomacy is the most well known in the field, which goes as follows. Humanitarian diplomacy is persuading decision makers and opinion leaders to act at all times in the interest of vulnerable people and with full respect for fundamental humanitarian principles. In uh, looking into the ICRC's organizational context of humanitarian diplomacy, there is perhaps no better person to talk to than Dr. Hugo Slim, who is joining me on today's episode. Hugo is a senior research fellow at the Plavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford, where he is researching war and humanitarian response in the 21st century at the Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. Hugo has moved in and out of humanitarian agencies and universities in a career that has combined operations, policy and diplomacy. Most recently, between 2015 and 2020, he was the head of policy and humanitarian diplomacy at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. We're very happy to have you with us today on the Humanitarian Diplomacy Podcast, Hugo. How are you? I'm very well, Salah, and thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Excellent. Um, very looking forward to the conversation. Perhaps we can start from a historical perspective. Uh, could you tell us where did ICRC's policy for humanitarian diplomacy emerge from? Well, I think if we're talking historically, we can go right back to the birth of the International Committee of the Red Cross on the battlefield of Solferino in 1859 in northern Italy, where Henri Dunant realized that he needed to um, set up a, a humanitarian organization to work to protect the wounded. And he also realized that the best way to ensure the wounded were protection were protected was to get legal regulation and recognition by states. So in that founding moment, really, he, he made a commitment not just to an operational organization, but to a form of humanitarian diplomacy that would bring states around the table in Geneva which they eventually did in 1864 to agree the first Geneva Convention. So the really, the I mean, he was only in Solferino for a few days. The main task he set himself with the other members of the first committee of the International Committee was a diplomatic one to get states around the table to make a new international law to protect the wounded. So diplomacy and policy, that policy to make that law and operations um, all come together in the birthing moment of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, and it's never stopped doing diplomacy ever since. 
Right, absolutely. And if we look into to the policy itself, there's quite interesting um, wording there that um, the establishment of this policy for ICRC is to set also a permanent mindset across, across all the national societies and the international federation on humanitarian diplomacy. Could you tell a little bit more, what does this kind of mindset for humanitarian diplomacy means in the context of ICRC? Well, I think Actually, started the policy you're quoting, I think, is the International Federation's policy from 2009, which is a great policy, and we all we all share and and, and use. Um, and really, that mindset is grounded in the fact that um, states, governments, um, all warring parties have obligations to protect civilians, protect prisoners of war. Um, and to ensure humanitarian aid in war. So the mindset comes from the fact that, you know, in the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, the people you are really trying to help are the people suffering from war or a disaster. Um, and the people you really need to engage to meet their responsibilities to help those people and let you help those people are states. And that means you have to, um, work, you know, we sometimes say with boots and suits, you need boots to work on the ground and you need suits to meet states in diplomatic fora, to go and meet government ministers, uh, whether they're ministers of health or foreign affairs or defense, you need to operate in boots and suits to meet people's needs. I love that kind of a division of boots and suits that you are referring to. I think it's quite illustrative of these kind of different levels in which humanitarian diplomacy operates in. So we talk about these very front lines, as um, Ashley Jonathan Clemens would refer to, the front lines of diplomacy, the front line negotiations uh, in uh, the humanitarian field level, but as well as going all the way high up to the policy levels, let's say UN Security Council and the World Humanitarian Summit and whatnot, these suits person that you, you mean to. But at the same time, um, and something that I alluded to also in the introduction, in a landscape where many other humanitarian actors have not established humanitarian diplomacy into their organizational lingo, I'd like to ask you the following. How important has it been for the ICRC to directly address humanitarian diplomacy? So in short, why does it matter? Well, it's incredibly important to the ICRC, and it really matters for the reasons I've given already. But also the ICRC is, is you know, a relatively unique organization because it is actually recognized by states in the Geneva Conventions. So it automatically has a formal role to um, engage and liaise with states and with all warring parties. So also with armed groups and whoever else is fighting. So the ICRC you know, has a mandate to engage diplomatically and operationally and on policy issues to try and improve the way aid and protection happens. Right. Uh, and something that ICRC's humanitarian diplomacy is known for is this kind of engagement of private humanitarian diplomacy. Could you elaborate a little bit about this division of public and private humanitarian diplomacy? Yeah, that's an important point because the ICRC is, is committed to neutrality and it's also uh, therefore, also committed to confidential dialogues. So, you know, you're right to make a distinction between private humanitarian diplomacy and public humanitarian diplomacy. And the ICRC invests a lot in humanitarian diplomacy. You know, they have 80 delegations around the world. They have a lot of people tasked to 
operators, diplomats. So they will be meeting states, armed groups, other members of the humanitarian sector all the time in private confidential dialogues to raise concerns about people's needs around the way, uh, you know, warring parties and humanitarians are behaving. And that will continue in private. Um, but public diplomacy, as you rightly say, has over the last 10, 15 years been fully recognized um, as an important way um, to promote your views and in a sense to speak not just to governments, but beyond governments to citizens and to peoples and to influential actors across society. And of course, public diplomacy has been greatly accelerated in the last 10, 15 years by social media, by the fact that we can all have in our pocket a Twitter account, a Facebook account that gives us instant access to do diplomacy live in real time and connect with other people live in real time. Mm, absolutely, the powerful tool of the phone that we have uh, with us all the time. Um, yes, if I go back to the, the concept in, in itself and these kind of policy frameworks for the organization that you know very well. Uh, I know that, for example, the World Food Programme has a unit on humanitarian diplomacy and uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, as we know, has, which has historically emerged from ICRC, has also a portfolio called the International Operations Coordinator and Head of Humanitarian Diplomacy. But at the same time, this is very tentative stages in many organizations. So I'd like to tap into your experience experience with ICRC's humanitarian diplomacy and the policy development of it. But could you share something to other humanitarian professionals who are currently working with these policy frameworks? That are there any recommendations in the developments or any pitfalls to avoid, perhaps? I think, I mean, you know, we, we, we spent, um, ICRC is a very reflective organization and we spent, you know, a good couple of years reflecting on how we want to update our approach to humanitarian diplomacy. Um, and we created, you know, new internal policy and directives and guidance and things. And it's, in a way, it's very straightforward. Um, for a start, you need to understand what you're doing. So you need a good definition. And in a sense, you started with a good definition. But in its most simple terms, humanitarian diplomacy is doing diplomacy for a humanitarian purpose. So you're trying to influence state and other actions and policies in the interests, needs and rights of people suffering and surviving in war and disaster. So you're, you're about, you know, humanitarian diplomacy is about influencing and it's about doing diplomacy. So doing all the usual techniques of diplomacy, going to the same meetings in bilateral forums, multilateral forums, public diplomacy, as we've discussed. Um, and it's about doing it for a humanitarian purpose. So that's the, the main thing to be clear of um, as you start, what you're trying to achieve. And of course, the second thing to realize is that humanitarian diplomacy is a technique. I mean, it's empty until you fill it up with something. And so you can't do humanitarian diplomacy unless you know what you want to persuade people about, what you want to influence them about, and how you want to change things. And for that, you need a policy. So you can't do humanitarian diplomacy unless you have you know, clear policies that you are trying to influence and change or clear operational objectives, access to that area, um, 
better improved conditions in detention, et cetera, clear operational objectives that are your policy changes. So that's important too. In a way that the, the, the great thing about humanitarian diplomacy, and ICRC always used to use this phrase, that the art of humanitarian diplomacy is translating humanitarian concerns into compelling political terms. And that is the alchemy of humanitarian diplomacy. Um, it's changing the sort of metal of people's desperate human needs into the gold of political interest and political attention and political action. And that that's the challenge. Um, just to, I can waffle on about this for hours, Sala, but to <laughs> interrupt me. But in, in, with the other thing we realize is that you're usually working in one of three realms of humanitarian diplomacy. So you're either doing operational diplomacy, where you're really focused on particular challenges operationally in Syria, in Yemen, in Mali, whatever, where you're trying to change something on the ground and influence behavior or policy there. Or you're doing um, legal diplomacy if you're the ICRC. You're working hard with states to come up with new law or new policies on weapons, um, on detention, on all sorts of things. So you're really working with lawyers to um, wordsmith legal text and policy and come up with new wording that then will guide action. And the other, the third one is, is in a way policy diplomacy where you're taking the big themes of humanitarian action like displacement or climate or urbanization and you're trying to come up with a, a good new humanitarian agenda around those big issues and that means working with states on migration on all sorts of things so there's three realms of humanitarian diplomacy operational diplomacy legal diplomacy and, and policy diplomacy you know you're usually in in one or a mixture of those spaces mm, a very interesting categorization indeed absolutely very illustrative I'd like to tap into Hugo what you said about this kind of humanitarian diplomacy being like embodying compelling political terms and how to advance humanitarian interest within this. So of course humanitarian diplomacy can be seen very oxymoronic in a sense that humanitarianism does stand for IHL and humanitarian principles and whatnot. And then diplomacy uh, can be seen very much about this persuasion and compromise and, and negotiation, which not necessarily apply for the principles. But then maybe tapping into your academic side as well, I know that in your book on humanita humanitarian ethics, you're also talking that perhaps some of these principles are more negotiable than others and more political than others. Would you have any, any reflects on these? Well, you're absolutely right to say that the actual business of diplomacy is about you know, face-to-face -face negotiation in various forms. It's about relationships. It's about, um, you know, getting together with people and coming up with some possible way forward. And around principles, um, you know, very often we know that, you know, principles are aspirational and, and very few humanitarian operations can be completely successful because they They cannot be 100% impartial, 100% independent, um, even 100% neutral um, because of the way they're seen and understood and heard. So you are always um, negotiating and a, a huge part of the persuasion of humanitarian diplomacy, the influencing, a huge part of it happens in negotiations and in talking. Other parts of it happen in sort of creating an environment around an issue, creating uh, popular interest, mobilizing society around um, humanitarian concerns. 
But at the last mile of it, it's usually about making some kind of deal with the key players um, about what can be done. Excellent. <clears throat> Perhaps if I then continue, I, one last thing on this kind of abstract policy level, and then we'll go to the nitty gritties and the humanitarian diplomats themselves, which I'd like to turn our conversation towards too. But perhaps if I if I play a little bit of a devil's advocate, and I, I did warn you that there might be some critical aspect coming also in this conversation, that the definition for ICRC's humanitarian diplomacy can be seen quite as all-encompassing. So how do you see, for example, that the, the ICRC's humanitarian diplomacy Diplomacy and its definition differs from, let's say, advocating or lobbying for humanitarian issues. So, so advocacy and lobbying is part of humanitarian diplomacy. I mean, it's it's what you know. In, in ICRC tends to steer clear of words like advocacy and lobbying because they carry sort of um, activist NGO. Um, business connotations. But, you know, humanitarian diplomacy for the ICRC wraps all those, you know, techniques up. So, you know, very often when we're doing humanitarian diplomacy, we're doing it also using a big widespread media campaign. So on um, explosive weapons in, in urban warfare at the moment, you'll see that the private and um, diplomatic engagement is complemented by a big campaign around it. So like all um, diplomacy and all politics, um, you're trying to build sort of a change in the feeling and sentiment and support around an issue at the same time as you're going before people to um, make that deal. So ICRC wouldn't talk about lobbying and advocacy, but, you know, they would understand that they are campaigning, they are using the media strategically to uh, increase public understanding of issues and um, build, build support, which will help them when they're in the room and round the table. Hmm, great. Yes, so I, I was also thinking about this kind of um, uh, how does the humanitarian diplomacy manifest also within the I, ICRC. And of course, if we go from this, you, you also mentioned this kind of categorizations of operational, legal and policy. But one combining factor there is the people themselves, the humanitarian diplomats themselves. So if we look into this kind of art or the craft of uh, humanitarian diplomacy, Hugo, what does it take to be a humanitarian diplomat? Well, I think the, the first thing it, it takes is that you've got to know your policy. You've got to know the thing you're trying to change or the thing you're trying to keep the same. You know, you've got to know your objective. But then in terms of skills, I mean, one of the most important things as a, as a diplomat that, that I observed, and the ICRC do this very well, is to be connected across the organisation. We used to use this phrase um, 3D. You need to work three-dimensionally. You know, you can't just be a diplomat on your own in Geneva or in Damascus. You need to be working with the, U the UN office in New York. You need to be working with capitals in Washington, um, you know, Beijing, Moscow, if you're talking about wars today, all those capitals are involved. So you've got to be working at all the dimensions, the three dimensions of operations, regional capitals and big, great power capitals. You've got to be joined up. So that's the first skill is to be able to keep each other informed, to be able to think as a global team. The second thing that's really important, um, we used to call it 3D, uh, sorry, 3E, where you, you know, to be effective in the room, in the table with 
and then wider outside with public opinion, you've got to have one or more of the three E's, which is evidence, experience and expertise. You need evidence of what you're arguing about to bring to the table. You know, if you're talking about explosive weapons, you've got to bring some serious evidence of instances where explosive weapons have caused disproportionate civilian harm. Um, and you've got to bring it to the table. You've got to have it to be credible. You've also got to be able to speak from experience if you can and really um, show that you know where you're talking about and what you're talking about. And then there are areas of expertise you need. So you might need legal expertise, food security expertise, um, displacement expertise, medical expertise. So there's three E's, even if you don't have them deeply as a diplomat, which I never did, you've got to be able to know enough to go into the room and bring the evidence, expertise and experience of your organisation in front of people. And that's an art because you end up having to know key things about a lot of things. And then I think the other really important thing about being a good humanitarian diplomat is, is you know, working with your heart, mind and ears. So, you know, this is an area of diplomacy. You need to bring some heart into it. You need to play a bit of emotion in because people are suffering and dying. You need to help people imagine that that could be them or their families. You need to bring some heart into it. But you also need to bring your mind, you need to be thoughtful, clever, on top of your brief, you need to be thinking about the other person's interest in front of you, the audience you have in front of you, what are their interests, what are their needs, how can you meet somewhere um, together. And you really, to do that well, you've really got to use your ears. So you really have to take a lot of time listening and that means really listening in meetings to what other people are saying, giving them more time to speak. Don't just go in and shout your you know, list of key messages and speaking points. Really listen to understand and then join a conversation. Don't have a parallel monologue with people. So listening is really important and listening is key all around the world. And again, the ICRC is lucky because it's, it's rich and big. And it has people listening in every capital to what different governments and groups are thinking and feeling about a problem. So listening is really important because then you're you're going to enter the real conversation, not have a separate conversation. And I think the other really important thing, um, two more things really, is, is you've got to have authenticity as a humanitarian diplomat. A lot of people get very stiff and formal when they feel they're representing their organization and they become something slightly different, like a sort of bureaucrat and rather wooden. Mm. The, the key thing is to be both. So you need to, you know, be the ICRC and be yourself. And you need to be OCHA and be yourself because you need to relate to a person as a person. So you need to keep your personal authenticity and let them know who you are. And then you'll get a personal relationship, which is a better relationship with which to discuss difficult problems. So be yourself as well as being the organization. And then the last thing I think is terribly important, and it's, it's very difficult sometimes to do this, but um, you know, we always used to say, make the ask. You know, in many meetings, you might get two minutes in a bump in meeting, in a busy meeting, you might get 15 minutes with a key person, you might get an hour around a table with people where everyone starts talking. 
don't forget, make the ask. Ask for the one or two big things you really want. Don't hint at them. Don't think, oh gosh, it's difficult. It's not going to be the moment or whatever. Make the ask and just say, this is what we want. This is what people need. This is what we're asking you for. And if you don't make that, you're not, you're not really doing your job. Um, so you've got to make it. And it's then about when do you make it? You know, what's your body language when you make it? But make the ask. Otherwise, you'd rather wasted the meeting. Hmm. Very insightful. And whereas, whereas you refer to external stakeholders and these kind of meeting scenarios and collaboration over borders, at the same time, I feel that these, these very same um, characteristics apply intra-organizationally. So in a sense that, for example, when I have been interviewing some OCHA practitioners on the field of humanitarian diplomacy, the, the, especially people in the field say that uh, often the headquarters is the first front line of the negotiation. And when interviewed very illustratively said, that they are the nomads in the field and the farmers in the headquarters and we just have inherently different perspectives but also to bring these kind of personal touches and relationship building and also this kind of a message of the common ideology behind it might be quite powerful also within the organization well you're absolutely right there i mean you know we all work in big bureaucracies these days unfortunately and you know the big the sort of the joke and the common knowledge at the ICRC was that you know you spent 80% of your time doing internal diplomacy where you were trying to convene your colleagues reach agreement shape the policy and the strategy and get that agreed and then probably 20% actually out there doing it and that is a reality of these big bureaucracies um and and you know internal diplomacy is in a way much harder than external diplomacy. You know, a lot of us always used to feel that, working with ourselves and with each other and across our organization. Um, and it's often easier just to say, right, I'm off to you know, meet the Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, the Indonesians, because it's easier than actually having to meet your own colleagues and bang heads mm. and say, what do we really want to do? And can we all agree that you will do this in Paris while you're doing that in uh, you know, Wagadougou, et cetera? Internal, right. internal diplomacy is difficult and it's really important. Absolutely. Very good. Very good remark. Perhaps to round off the conversation, um, uh, of course, your experience with the head of um, ICRC's humanitarian diplomacy was from 2015 and 2020. But of course, you are a well-known thinker in the field and the studies of humanitarianism, so your perspective goes well beyond that as well. But now looking into the future, how would you want to see, what kind of developments would you want to see on human, humanitarian diplomacy going forward? Well, I would love all organizations to keep getting good at it. Um, I would love um, governments who have conflicts in their own country, who have disasters in their own country. I think it's really important that they get really good at it. Um, it's, it's very interesting. I was with Klingendal the other day, who have now started a humanitarian diplomacy course in The Hague in, in the Netherlands for um, diplomats from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and all over the place, you know, they have huge challenges. You know, you can be in Geneva and you can have, as there are, or New York, you know, endless meetings on humanitarian issues, Syria, Yemen, displacement, climate, whatever. And 
these rich countries have a lot of diplomatic power and capability. They probably have one diplomat who's tasked to track the Red Cross, Red Crescent and UN humanitarian movement, one that's tracking human rights, one, you know, whole team of five that are doing trade and other things. Um, if you're, a, a, you know, the government of, you know, Niger, Mali, um, you know, even Yemen and all sorts of, you know, Arab countries as well, you don't have that capacity. You don't have one diplomat who's doing human rights and humanitarian um, and one that's doing trade. So we really lose the voices, the interests and the um, you know, policies of those countries. And they're in many ways the most important countries to humanitarian diplomacy. They need to be um, arguing you know, the needs of their people and they need to be challenging the humanitarian policies of the big aid machine that operates in their country. So I would hope that somehow there are better partnerships between um, countries in crisis, um, their diplomacy, their diplomatic teams and um, aid agencies and other governments. Great. I think that's quite a, a great concluding remark here, unless you have anything else that you'd like to highlight at the end of the episode. No, I'm not at all, Sarah, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to your research and finding out more of what you've discovered in due course. So somebody better interview you at some point. <laughs> Excellent. We'll make sure of that as well. Uga, thank you so much for taking part of the Humanitarian Diplomacy podcast today. It's a pleasure. And thank you for our listeners as well. And please stay tuned for more op upcoming episodes for the podcast.